Everyone, this is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. May 22nd would have been Harvey Milk's 88th birthday. The first openly gay man elected to public office in the United States, Harvey became a martyr after his assassination. Today, I'm joined by Lillian Faderman, author and renowned scholar of LGBTQ and ethnic history and literature. She's written Harvey Milk, a biography, as part of the Jewish Lives series. Lillian, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. Harvey Milk was born in Woodmere, New York. How did his uh, family come to settle there from Lithuania? Well, his grandfather came in the 19th century. His grandfather had been a dairy man in a little shtetl in Lithuania, and he had a, uh, a stepbrother in Kansas City, and the stepbrother invited him to... Uh, to try his fortune in America, but the catch was he had to leave his wife and five children behind. So the grandfather, whose name was Mausha Milch, not Milk, but Milch, <laughs> uh, came to uh, to Kansas City. Um, he worked in the stepbrother's store for three years, realized he would never make enough money to send for his wife and five children. And so he um, he moved to New York, stayed for a little while with an aunt on Long Island, got a peddler's pack, uh, peddled his wares for a couple of years, made enough money to open a dry goods store, and eventually made enough money to open the first department store on Long Island. And he changed his name to Milk. It was Milk's department store. <laughs> he sent for his wife and five children the year before he opened the store. And he made his fortune, and that's how the family settled in Woodmere, Long Island. And at that point, there weren't uh, there weren't a lot of people um, there weren't a lot of Jewish people in that part of uh, Long Island, right? I, I think that Mausha Milk was virtually the first Jew in Woodmere. <laughs> Long Island. Um, eventually, the population expanded. And in the 1920s, he uh, helped found a synagogue, Sons of Israel, Congregation Sons of Israel, on Woodmere, Long Island. There had been a synagogue a couple of miles away, but that meant that even in in bad weather on the Sabbath, he would have to do uh, four miles, walk four miles back and forth. And so they founded the synagogue, and that's where Harvey was bar mitzvahed in 1943. And how big of a role did being Jewish uh, play in Harvey's early life? His family, I think, uh, was very Jewish, not religiously, but culturally. The grandfather became very observant, and uh, the entire family belonged to Congregation Sons of Israel. Harvey was very aware of anti-Semitism even in his early life. On Long Island, uh, there was actually an enclave of the German-American Bund, which was a a huge Nazi organization, and they would have big uh, rallies on Yafank, Long Island. Uh, And of course, Harvey's family was aware of that. There had actually been various chapters of the Ku Klux Klan 
on Long Island. The family was aware of that. And Harvey was uh, very aware of, of uh, World War II and uh, the fate of European Jews. He uh, said as an adult that uh, he uh, had always remembered the fall of the Warsaw Ghetto, actually six days before his bar mitzvah in 1943. His family, he said, told him that they they fought, the people in the ghetto fought back and fought valiantly, even though they knew it was a losing proposition, because when something so evil attacks you, of course you have to fight. And that became his, his metaphor when he worked uh, for gay rights. He, he referred very often to the Holocaust and, and the fate of European Jews and how important it was to, to be aware early and fight back early and, uh, and not, uh, not uh, accept your fate in any way, but, but be proactive with the first signs of, of discrimination against you. And I, I think that made him very militant in fighting discrimination. And Harvey, uh, growing up and, and throughout his life, was so, somewhat of a, a double outsider, I believe you put it, um, being a, a gay man, a closeted gay man at this time, and also uh, Jewish. Um, what was his What was his childhood like? Um, what was his relationship, especially with his father, Bill? Yeah, he, he had a, a very um, contentious relationship with his father. And I, I think that Bill had a contentious relationship with Mausha, uh, who became more in America, of course. It, it must have been so difficult for Bill, who was six months old when his father left Lithuania, and uh, he was six years old when he uh, came with his mother and siblings to Ellis Island. And here was this tall American stranger from his perspective, who was his father, and a year later his mother had another child, and so Bill, who had been the baby of the family, was cast out of that role. And then um, the mother died when Bill was uh, 16, and Mausha remarried, and I think it, it always made for a very contentious relationship between Bill and his father, and that emotional aspect was carried over to Bill's fathering. So Harvey had a very difficult relationship with Bill. He had a good relationship with his grandfather, though, who uh, may have been hard on his kids, but loved his grandkids. <laughs> his grandfather was a, a, a great philanthropist because he became fairly wealthy uh, as the owner of a department store and then a real estate investor on on Long Island. Um, and he, he uh, donated to causes that uh, were good causes, and Harvey admired that. And his grandfather, Harvey, liked to remember, told him, don't hide your green hair. People will see it anyway, <laughs> by which he meant, um, if, if, if you're different, uh, don't don't pretend you're not. Just be who you are. And I, I doubt that Mausha Milch understood Harvey's homosexuality, but but he did understand that Harvey was a different kind of guy. And <laughs> He encouraged difference, and Harvey's mother um, was was a uh, philanthropist. But more than that, uh, really believed in in tikkun olam, in repairing the world. She actually died in her early sixties 
of a heart attack because she was uh, delivering a 24-pound turkey to a settlement house so that uh, people who wouldn't otherwise have a Thanksgiving dinner could have a nice Thanksgiving dinner. So she uh, had a heart attack. She languished in the hospital for five days, and she died on November 27th in 1962. November 27th was actually the year that Harvey was killed, too. So hmm. very sad irony. And Harvey ultimately rejects Judaism uh as a as a religious faith, but he retains his Jewishness uh, throughout his life. Why did he uh, reject this sort of religious aspect of it? I, I think it had to do partly because he he felt that as a gay man in the nineteen fifties, uh, even the nineteen forties, he recognized he was gay at the age of fourteen. He wouldn't be accepted in organized religion, any organized religion in the 1940s and the 1950s. I think that was a big part of it. But he he always, even when he felt he had to hide his homosexuality, he always was proud of being Jewish. He, he would introduce himself to people as a New York Jew. He would say it <laughs> Very boldly. And and he would never say, I'm Jewish. He would say, I'm a Jew, which is much more direct and, <laughs> and in some ways more confrontational. I, I, I found such uh, really lovely stories about Harvey's Jewish identification. One was um, he, he went away to college in uh, Albany, New York, and he came back one year for Christmas break, um, and he visited uh, a friend of his who was uh, Catholic, and they were hanging uh, Christmas lights on the outside of the house. And Harvey said, oh, let me help. And the section of lights that he uh, hang, he put, uh, he devised into a Star of David. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was an announcement uh, to his good friend and their family and everyone else that, that he loved them and he loved to help, but this is who he was. And, <laughs> and- what was it like uh, for Harvey growing up as a closeted gay man in Long Island in in the forties? Um, were there were there places for him that he could sort of go to uh, to find any sort of sense of community, or was he completely on his own? You know, he he realized he was gay when he was quite young. Um, he he loved opera from the time that he was. 11 years old. And when he was 14, he got his mother to give him enough money so he could take a train into the city and go to the Metropolitan Opera and buy standing room tickets. And he looked around and he saw that there were a lot of gay men there. And he he realized that this was what he wanted. This was who he was. But as he said himself, after he made that realization, home was never home again to me, he said, because he had to hide that from his parents. As much as his mother was loving and accepting, he, he knew that in the 1940s and so the 1950s, she died in the early 60s, he could never tell her about that part of his life. Um, when he was in high school, the family moved to Bayshore, and they moved very close to the 
um, ferry that uh, took people to Fire Island. And of course, he would see this procession of, of gay men. He was still a kid. He was 15. Um, he could see this procession of gay men coming and going from the ferry. And he knew that that's where he wanted to be. But he he couldn't be there yet, and he couldn't tell his family about that. And so he just, he had to hide. At one point, he uh, uh, he dated girls in his high school at Bayshore. Um, he even double-dated with his brother a little later on. Uh, he was very closeted. And I think one of the sorrows of his life, because a, a great message that he had for the gay community was how important it was to come out. One of the sorrows of his life was that he never came out to his mother or his father. His mother died in the 1960s, early 1960s, didn't come out to her. His father lived until 1976, but they had such a distant relationship that he never came out to his father. And his father was in New York, of course, and by then Harvey was in San Francisco. So he was he was isolated as a young gay person uh, in the 1940s and 1950s. He did, I, I should say, he did once in a while go to Central Park, um, even uh, as a teenager at the age of 17, um, he was even arrested in Central Park together with other gay men because it was a cruising area. He did not uh, get thrown in jail. He said that he's a, a high school student and he was just there to uh, uh, to walk around Central Park and uh, get a <laughs> suntan. And so they let him off. But I, I think it was very difficult to be a gay teen in, in the 1940s and, and then later in the 1950s as a young man. It was still very difficult. And do you think his uh, sort of embracing of, you know, being I'm a Jew, um, saying it in such a way and being so uh, upfront about it in a way, was that sort of a way of kind of proclaiming what he was while he, while he still had to hide part of who he actually was? And I, I think that's absolutely true. You know, even when he was in college, uh, he was at the New York State uh, College for Teachers in Albany, uh, the college that became SUNY Albany. But in those days, of course, it was much smaller. He uh, he joined a Jewish fraternity. He joined an incipient Zionist organization on campus. He joined uh, Hillel on campus. He went to lectures about, uh, in those days, it was still Palestine, and then in 1948, uh, he was very happy about uh, uh, Jewish independence and the birth of the state of Israel. Um, he could write his parents about those things, uh, and maybe somehow it made up for him uh, about what he could not tell his parents. He couldn't tell him about the gay part of his life, but he could tell them about how he was very active in Jewish culture at college. And uh, I, I think that that, that was part of uh, uh, perhaps placating his parents, but he also felt very strongly that that was the fraternity that he belonged in. He was very happy to, to be there. And you, you mentioned his, uh, his time in college, he went to college for teaching, uh, but joined the Navy after he graduated. Why did he join the Navy? 
Well, I, I think he really didn't want to teach. I think his parents uh, urged him to that college. The teaching was not what he wanted to do. He was uh, at a loss about what he wanted to do. So he went off to the Navy for four years, got out of the Navy, and was still at a loss about what he wanted to do. And his parents pointed out that he had a degree in teaching and he should teach. <laughs> and so he did teach for um, for one year. And I interviewed uh, people that he taught, and apparently he was a, a wonderful teacher. I, I interviewed one person who had been um, a 15-year-old kid when uh, he wasn't in Harvey's class, but Harvey tutored him, and his parents had hired a tutor for him because he um, hated school, was flunking out of uh, algebra, uh, hated his algebra teacher. They had sent him to a psychiatrist <laughs> twice a week, and the psychiatrist meeting was just when he wanted to uh, play baseball for his high school. And the parents say, well, if you uh, let us hire a tutor and you do better, then you don't have to go to the psychiatrist. So it was Harvey who wanted to make some extra money, who was his tutor. And this person, Robert Greenbaum, told me that that Harvey turned his life around. Harvey knew exactly how to get to this very difficult kid by talking sports and uh, talking souped-up cars and talking about the kinds of things that a 15-year-old kid would like to talk about, and then turning his attention to algebra. <laughs> and because the kid so respected this adult who knew so much about souped-up cars and sports, he really listened and he passed his classes and it, it made a huge difference in his life. So Harvey was very talented as a teacher, but Harvey had also started a serious relationship that year he was teaching, and he knew that um, teachers were being witch-hunted if they were uh, gay. He knew that he wouldn't keep his job very long if they found out that he was a homosexual. So he decided that this was not for him. So he, uh, after the year was over, he quit teaching. He went to Dallas to try to make his fortune with his partner. That didn't work out. He, he talked a lot about the anti-Semitism he encountered in Dallas. He went back to New York, and because he had been a math minor, he was able to get uh, an entry-level job, uh, this time for a uh, uh, great American insurance company, it was called, um, doing uh, bookkeeping, accounting for them. He didn't like that very much. Eventually, he ended up on Wall Street still using his math skills as a security analyst. But, you know, he kept changing who he was. So he, he was uh, a jock in college, and then he was in the Navy, and then he was a, a, a teacher, and that didn't work out. And, and then uh, he did things with numbers. He became a security analyst on Wall Street. He was actually a Goldwater Republican for a while, which is so hard to believe. If we know who Harvey Milk was when he became famous. Um, and then he uh, he became involved in the theater, and he became a hippie, and uh, he was a gopher for Tom O'Horgan, who was the director of Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar. And then he moved to San Francisco, and he became a small businessman with Castro Camera. And finally, he got into politics, and he was able to realize at that time 
who Harvey Milk really was, the real Harvey Milk that we know. So how does uh, how does he end up in politics? Well, he um, he opened um, with the man who was his uh, partner, lover, Scott Smith. He opened a camera store in the uh, Castro district, which uh, when they arrived in 1972 was already a very gay area in San Francisco. He um, wasn't that interested in, in selling film but um, 1973, uh, around the time of the Watergate hearings, he was uh, absolutely fascinated with what was going on. So uh, they lived upstairs from the camera shop. Uh, he took his little television downstairs, put it on a chair, and instead of selling film, he uh, watched the Watergate hearings all day long. (laughs) And at that time, he had uh, long hair and a bushy ponytail and a huge mustache. And he was just so interested in the Watergate hearings that he he would just sit there. uh, Even when customers came in, he would let Scott deal with the customers. So Scott would complain that here was this guy already in his 40s, bushy hair, mustache, dark circles under his eyes, screaming at the television (laughs) uh, (laughs) with four-letter words uh, about uh, how terrible uh, Richard Nixon was and how terrible John Mitchell was and how uh, uh, disgraceful John Dean was. (laughs) And customers would just be scared off. So that happened in uh, 1973. Another thing that happened is that, um, uh, of of course, he had to pay taxes to get a business license, and uh, uh, a representative from the city came in and said that uh, he had to immediately pay $100 uh, up front for the license. And Harvey said, I don't have $100. I'm just trying to open a business here. This is America. This is free enterprise. They started yelling at each other and customers were uh, running away. <laughs> and uh, Harvey again used four-letter words with a guy and said, you're, you're driving off my customers. Anyway, he refused to pay the $100. He uh, fought with <laughs> City Hall. He got it down to $30. And that was kind of his first victory with City <laughs> Hall. And he thought that this this is not fair for a poor business owner who's just trying to get a start to to be taxed like this and to have to pay all that money up front. The third thing that happened is that um, a young woman who was uh, an elementary school teacher came into Castro Camera to rent a projector because she wanted to show a movie to her second grade students. And Harvey said, you mean your school doesn't have any projectors? And she said, well, they have a couple, uh, but you have to reserve them months in advance because all the other teachers want to borrow them as well. And Harvey thought that was disgraceful. Yeah, the, the city was paying money for the vice squad to go into gay bars and entrap gay men but the city wouldn't pay enough money so that elementary school teachers could show a movie to elementary school kids uh, using a projector. So he 
that made him feel that that he really wanted to change things. And shortly after that, he uh, decided he would run for the Board of Supervisors. And that was his first run in 1973. And of course, he lost. Um, He had to figure out how to do it. And in 1973, he was still very naive. He ran again in 75. He got 53,000 more votes in 75 than he got in 73. And out of, there were six slots available for the Board of Supervisors. Um, he came in seventh. So he just missed becoming a, uh, a member of the Board of Supervisors in 1975. And then he ran again in 1976 for uh, the assembly. Uh, there was a seat available from his assembly district. He lost that, too, because he did not understand uh, the Democratic machine yet, and the favorite of the uh, movers and shakers in the Democratic Party was Art Agnos, and they put him forward against Harvey. So Harvey lost a third time. In 77, San Francisco moved to district elections, which meant that um, Harvey could run in the district that included uh, the Castro and Haight-Ashbury and Noe Valley and other areas that he knew already. He was much loved. And of course, that time he won. He won in 1977, and he began serving on the Board of Supervisors in January of 1978. And he wasn't uh, he wasn't there very long but uh, before he was assassinated. But what was, was he able to accomplish in the time there? So he began in... Uh, January, he was assassinated on November 27th, so he served just for uh, 11 months on the Board of Supervisors. But he accomplished such important things. One thing that that he accomplished was simply being there. It made national news that a gay man was elected in a major city in a very important role, and, and that was so important. Important, I think, because other people who would have wanted to go in po- into politics and thought that they couldn't do that because they were gay were encouraged by his election. But not only gay people, as, as Harvey said, um, when, uh, when he was elected, my election is a green light, uh, not only for gay people, but for all minorities, to you can understand now that in America, this is possible. In America, you could be a minority. You could come from a group that's discriminated against, and, and yet um, you can win public office. And so that was so important, just his image. But he did other things that, that I think were crucial. He um, got the Board of Supervisors to pass a gay rights ordinance that was the most powerful gay rights ordinance in the country to that point. Not only did it uh, forbid discrimination in uh, housing and employment and public accommodations, but it also opened the way very clearly uh, for people who were discriminated against to sue. And it it really had teeth in it, as Harvey pointed out. And I think subsequent gay rights ordinances in cities were often modeled after that one. Um, Harvey was very upset about apartheid in South Africa. uh, And he um, 
presented to the Board of Supervisors a resolution to not do business with uh, uh, corporations, uh, other uh, businesses who uh, uh, had uh, anything to do with South Africa. Uh, San Francisco's Board of Supervisors passed that, and it was really the uh, San Francisco was really the first city that that passed such a resolution, and after that, uh, over a hundred cities passed similar resolutions that as long as South Africa was apartheid, the city would not do business with them. He uh, worked very hard for rent control. He uh, worked very hard for uh, senior citizens and other minorities. He knew to make uh, coalitions with racial and ethnic groups and work for their concerns. He, um, <laughs> he actually uh, proposed and was able to get the Board of Supervisors to pass a pooper scooper law. <laughs> He wasn't, uh, San Francisco was not the first city to have a pooper scooper law, but San Francisco really had a problem with dog droppings on the sidewalk. (laughs) Harvey said at one point, um, uh, anyone who could get a a pooper scooper law passed in this city will become at least mayor, maybe even president of the United States. (laughs) And he he, he was right that that, uh, he would get major attention for that. And he was a showman. So what he did is um, there was a, a, a park where people liked to walk their dogs in San Francisco, uh, DuBose Park. He actually had um, an assistant plant some dog droppings on the lawn there. He called up the media and said, I'll meet you in DuBose Park and I'm going to talk about my pooper scooper law. And he purposely stepped into the dog droppings. <laughs> he, he knew the cameras would take a picture of that. He lifted his shoe to show the cameras, and that picture appeared all over the country. And <laughs> it was really quite wonderful. As, as Harvey told the gay community, uh, they're talking about, about this, about me, uh, as a gay man who's a supervisor all over the country, and they're realizing that a gay man could serve in office, and he wasn't fighting just for gay people, although he was indeed fighting for gay people too, but he was also fighting for the good of the entire city, the entire community. So he he was a showman, and he really knew how to do things like that. <laughs> um, and so Harvey um, is, is, on, is a supervisor, and he... Uh, meets uh, Dan White, who will ultimately assassinate him. What was their relationship uh, like at the beginning? Was it was it bad from the beginning, uh, or did they ha- did they get along? Dan White ran uh, in a working class, very conservative district, and he ran um, as uh, one of his very strong planks on his platform was that he would do something about the social deviates in San Francisco. Uh, He said this this city is going downhill because of all of the social deviates. So, of course, he didn't like Harvey from the beginning. I think Harvey really did try to get along with him. Dan White uh, had a baby while uh, he was 
in office and uh, had a baptism and had a little party, and Harvey actually went to that. But uh, they they disagreed on practically every issue. Harvey, for instance, was uh, for rent control. Dan White was beloved by the Board of Realtors in San Francisco because he made speeches saying that if if uh, landlords can't get decent uh, money for their rentals, who would want to own apartment buildings in San Francisco? So they were diametrically opposite in, in that way. Um, I, I think the uh, Perhaps one of the things that uh, made for the most discord between them is that um, the uh, the city wanted to open up in uh, Dan White's district a uh, a residential facility for uh, troubled youth, and people in his district did not want it there. And they went to Dan White and they said, you have to fight this. You have to fight this on the Board of Supervisors. And that became Dan White's big issue. And of course, Harvey thought that that there should be facilities for troubled youth. And there was nothing wrong with where it was going to be placed. Uh, at one point, uh, Harvey sort of uh, led Dan White to believe that if Dan White would just support the gay rights ordinance, which was trapped in Dan White's committee on uh, police, fire, and safety, the committee was called, then maybe Harvey would consider supporting uh, Dan White's resolution to prohibit uh, a, a home for troubled youth in Dan White's district. But when it came right down to it, uh, Harvey could not do that. And so he voted against uh, Dan White's resolution. And that really sealed their enmity, I think. But it, it wasn't simply that. It was also that uh, Dan White resigned his position because he, uh, I think he really felt he was somehow uh, uh, it was just way above his head. He he had a very hard time. He was the youngest supervisor ever elected. He was only 31 years old. He had a high school education. He had no political experience, and it it was difficult for him. Uh, I I think most of the time he just was unable to track what was going on in the board of supervisors, and. Um, in, in California, in 1978, uh, we had the Briggs Initiative, uh, which um, a, a very far right-wing uh, California senator had introduced that said that uh, if you're homosexual, or even if you say anything nice about homosexuality, you could not work in California's public schools. The Briggs Initiative was uh, roundly defeated, in part thanks to Harvey's very good work. Uh, and in San Francisco, there were only four precincts out of well over 100 precincts that voted for in favor of the Briggs Initiative. All four precincts were in Dan White's district. And so he realized he was very out of sync with the Board of Supervisors. So he resigned. Uh, turned in his resignation. The Board of Supervisors voted to accept his resignation. And a few days later, he went to Mayor Moscone to say he made a mistake. He wanted his job back. He changed his mind. Mayor Moscone said, well, you've already resigned and, and the board has accepted it. And I don't think uh, I can do anything. 
and uh, Dan White just pleaded so pathetically that Moscone said, well, let, let me give it some thought. Let me figure out what I could do. Harvey heard that Moscone was considering reinstating Dan White, who was so out of sync with the board. And Harvey said that this guy is way off to the right. Uh, you have the power now to appoint another liberal. Why, why don't you do that? And Moscone understood that that was probably what he needed to do. And so he did appoint a liberal. Um, Dan White found out about it through a telephone call from the San Francisco Chronicle on Sunday night. Monday night, he came to City Hall with a loaded gun and 10 extra bullets in his pocket. And he killed first George Moscone. He walked across the long hall to the supervisor's offices and he killed Harvey Milk. And what was the aftermath of that like in, in San Francisco, but also the rest of the country and in the uh, LGBTQ community? When Harvey was killed, uh, there was a, a huge candlelight parade, not only for Harvey, but Mayor Moscone, too. But there were uh, literally 35,000 San Francisco's. It was just a, a river of lights. People who were there described it to me. It went on and on, a quiet, uh, peaceful parade. The only sound that could be heard, I was told, were uh, the sound of people walking and people crying. And that was it. Um, but uh, in May uh, of uh, 1979, uh, Dan White was tried and sentenced and for killing the mayor of San Francisco and a member of the Board of Supervisors, Harvey, he was sentenced to seven years and eight months um, because his lawyers had managed to plead that he was not himself, that he was so upset about having lost his job, that he subsisted on Twinkies and Coca-Cola, and he had sugar poisoning, and the jury went for it and gave him what was essentially a wrist slap. Uh, that started in San Francisco, not a uh, quiet, mournful parade, such as uh, they had right after Harvey's assassination, but a riot, the White Knight riot. Uh, people were furious and thousands rioted. It, it almost equaled the Stonewall riots in New York nine years earlier. So what happened immediately after those uh, the terrible riot is that uh, people calmed down a bit and realized that they needed to do something in Harvey's memory. Uh, for years, there had been a discussion of having a march on Washington. And Harvey uh, had said that uh, he thought that there should be a march on Washington. He said that in 1978. In 1979, on, on July 4th, 1979, uh, gay people should march on Washington to tell the president and 
to tell the legislators what America really was. America stood for for uh, equality and justice and non-discrimination, and gay people had to bring that message to Washington. A week before his assassination, he actually called for a march. But people had been calling for a march for years, and nothing was happening. With the emotion of his assassination, Gay groups in New York and in San Francisco said, the time is now. We have to do this now. And so they scheduled a March on Washington, the first March on Washington for October 1979. And that attracted 100,000 people. And it was really wonderful that America saw that these were gay people. These were homosexuals, not people who lurk in the shadows ready to pounce on a 12-year-old, but but your sons and your daughters and your aunts and your uncles and your next-door neighbors and your beloved co-workers. And that started a series of marches. There was one in 1987 that attracted 600,000 people. There was one in 1993 that attracted almost a million people. But I think they probably would not have happened if it hadn't been for the emotion around Harvey's death that finally triggered those marches on Washington. And Harvey became a a major icon in uh, 1999. Uh, Time magazine had a list of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century, not just Americans, but people all over the world. Harvey was on that list in a section called Heroes and Icons, together with Anne Frank, Che Guevara, the Kennedys, and Mother <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> so I, I think by then he he was uh, already a, a known as a hero and icon. Um, he's been so honored since then. Um, uh, he was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama in 2009. That's the highest civilian honor, a posthumous uh, Medal of Freedom. Um, a stamp uh, has been issued with his image on it. Um, there's a uh, uh, annual uh, Harvey Milk Day in California to celebrate his memory. A Navy ship is being built that's uh, named after him. It's going to be called the Harvey Milk. Um, uh, An airport terminal in San Francisco is going to be called the Harvey Milk Terminal. Uh, There are streets all over the world called Harvey Milk Street now. I, I think that if people know no other name of a gay historical figure of the 20th century, they know the name Harvey Milk. I, I think he's our major historical figure. And what do you think uh, Harvey would think about the current state of LGBTQ rights in America? I think Harvey would be thrilled that now uh, people can marry a same-sex partner. He was actually talking about that in the early 1960s in uh, letters that I had found to uh, a young woman who was his confidant and close friend. Uh, He uh, uh, was uh, breaking up with a young man that he had lived with for five years, and Harvey was very upset about the breakup. And and the point he made in these letters is that if only 
gay people could marry, it wouldn't be so easy to just break up. Joe Campbell announced that he was leaving, and, and that was it. And what Harvey said is that if, if you're married, the community comes to your side and urges you to stay together. And you go to couples counseling if you're married, and, and your family says you can't do that. You, you, uh, uh, this is your partner, and, and you really uh, have made a life with this person. You can't just walk out. You have to reconsider it. And, of course, there's the law. It's not so easy to just say, I'm leaving. You have to get a divorce. And Harvey's point was that if, if gay people could do that, it would solidify their relationships at least as much as it solidifies heterosexual relationships. So he would be thrilled that now um, same-sex couples could marry. Harvey was in the military, and he had to be very closeted in the military. He actually at one point uh, announced that uh, he had had a dishonorable discharge. What he was really saying is that a lot of gay people had dishonorable discharges, and, and that was a huge injustice. He uh, served for four years, and he got a, an honorable discharge. But the way he managed to get an honorable discharge is he was very closeted. He mm-hmm. never let it be known that that he was gay while he was in the Navy. So he would be so happy now that, uh, that gay men and lesbians could serve openly in the military, and hopefully even transgender people will be able to serve openly openly in the military. He, he would be thrilled, I think, at the progress that we've made. But he would be the first to point out, too, that although we've made such great progress, things are not yet perfect for LGBTQ people. Uh, we're not yet absolutely first-class American citizens. And he would be in the forefront of the fight to make us first-class American citizens. Well, the book is Harvey Milk, His Lives and Death. Lillian, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.